Yo, what's up? It's Ben Scarborough. I'm sitting here at Third Eye Collective in the secret room with a walking civil rights legend. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Knight. Hey, man. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah. Um, we've been trying to hook up. Like two ships passing in the night. Yeah, but the ships got together today. And they we did. Are. We docked at the same station. Hey, we getting that fuel? Yeah. Uh, this is this is great. Uh, Isn't it fun podcasting, right? You know, it's new to me. Uh, seen a little bit of it. But. Mm -hmm. It's like new age radio. It's like a radio in a controlled environment. Radio that we can control. That's great. I don't like to be controlled too much. You know, I'm a civil rights activist. Right, right. Well, you know, we're going to blow, blow the roof off this sucker in just a minute. So for everybody at home that doesn't know, Nate has been in the civil rights uh, scene for decades. Hey, I met Dr. Martin Luther King when I was 11 years of age. And, and you know what? That's actually a great story. So why don't you let everybody at, at home know that story? Tell, what was that like for you? Well, it was a very unique experience. I uh, sold newspapers in Greensboro, North Carolina. We moved to Greensboro. How old were you at that time? Uh, 11. 11, okay. I was 11 years of age. Uh, we moved from Tarboro, North Carolina, to Greensboro because of the uh, hurricanes that came through, Hurricane Hazel. She came through and just ravaged the east coast of North Carolina. My parents saw the devastation come in, and we got out ahead of the storm and moved to Greensboro. My father just gotten out of World War II just a few years before, so we were sort of unstable there. Okay. But uh, I was selling newspapers. My brother sold newspapers, Harry, Bill, and uh, I was the youngest. They direct my steps, and I couldn't deviate too much. But uh, on this particular day, I was coming from my aunt's house on Gar Street in Greensboro. And as I came to the Bennett College campus, I could see cars over on the campus. People dressed different than I'm accustomed to the students dressing. So I knew something special was going on that day. So I ran, jumped over a brick wall fence that they have that's about five feet tall. I'm just a little guy. Uh -huh. But I got over that fence because I could save some time and start selling my papers quickly. And uh, I, I approached the area where the cars were, and there were people gathered around one of the cars, and there was a fellow there standing there talking. So I went to the back side of the car not to disturb him. And the gentleman that had his feet hanging out of the car, tall, lanky, I approached him to buy my paper, the Future Outlook newspaper, which was uh, African American paper put out by Jane, excuse me, by um, James Franklin Johnson, and uh, I, I felt real proud to sell that paper. So I asked him to buy one. He looked at me and said, "Yeah, I buy, I, I buy one, no pro trouble at all. It was an easy sell." And there was another guy. So I, I turned around. He was in the back seat, and I asked him. If he would buy one of my papers, he said yes. They both said yes. So I was waiting for them to give me the money. And I'm this guy that was talking to the people. And there he was. And I said, no, nah, I won't, won't bother him. And he turned around just at that moment. Young man, can you tell me what's in that newspaper? And I, I proudly, I proudly said, yes, I can tell you. And I was sort of taken aback. Very few people questioned me about what was in the paper. They bought it because they were familiar with it. And uh, I told them what was on the f page six of the paper. When you open the newspaper, it was just two sheets uh, folded together. Sometimes it would be three 
folded together. But on page six, you always had who was in the hospital, okay, what room they were in, what church did they go to. Oh, interesting. And you also had the address, and I felt like that was the news because I sold more newspaper because of that. He looked at me and said, I'm going to buy one of your papers because I think you do know what's in it. He reached in his pocket and pulled out some change, and there was a quarter. He gave me the quarter. He said, I'm going to pay for theirs and mine. And uh, you keep the tip. Very nice. Man, it was very, very nice. I only made two cents off each paper. Oh, okay. I just got a 10 cent tip. I have to sell five papers wow. to get two cents. You got a tip from Dr. Martin Luther King from Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King That's Jr. That's awesome. <laughs> and I didn't know who he was. It, it, it would be a moment. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the one that gave me the quarter. The first person I spoke to was uh, Rev. David Abernathy, who was with Dr. Martin Luther King one, the year before, and they created the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in that year, 1957. It was 1958 when I met Dr. King. Okay. And uh, I learned the stories to why he was on the campus. But more than that, I'm going to tell you that part a little bit later. But let me tell you about why he was on the campus. Dr. King was invited to North Carolina A&T College, which was an agriculture and technical school at the time, uh, by the president, Walter T. Gibbs. And uh, the invitation was sent to him from the NAACP. And uh, Mr. Kilimanjaro uh, was the gentleman uh, that invited Dr. King. He was the secretary. He was the one that put the letter together that went out. Okay. Dr. Gibbs had to let Dr. King know there had been a change of heart. He couldn't come over on the anti-campus to speak. North Carolina Anti-State was a co-ed school, and uh, there was a reason for Dr. King choosing that school to come. He was laying the foundation for some things that's going to happen in the future. And the North Carolina Anti-State was the, was the place that was chosen. Bennett College was an all-girls school, but it was a Methodist college, and uh, as a result, they didn't have the Board of Regency to deal with that and he had so oh, okay. He went over to North Carolina. Uh, I'm sorry, he went over to Bennett College, and brought the story of what was taking place in Montgomery, Alabama, what was taking place in Selma, what was taking place in other parts of Alabama and Mississippi. And that was usual for Martin to do at the time because he was in the early rebel rouser days, as you were telling me, right? Like, well, it's interesting that you would use that word, Ben, because my <laughs> daddy told me to stay away from the rebel rouser. <laughs> we never talk about this. It's not something you and I had dialogue about. But yes, he was considered to be the rebel rouser. And uh, the word out to young people, they knew he was coming, but they didn't tell us what it looked like. They didn't tell us where he was going to be, but make sure we stayed away from the rebel rouser. Okay. And there I was, right in the midst of, of uh, one of the greatest spokesmen of our time, but I didn't know it. I did not know it. What happened, I sold my papers out to all the other people that was there, and I had this opportunity to either go and get some more papers or go inside, sit down, uh -huh. and listen to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That is awesome. What do you think I did, Jim? Um, it, you probably sat there and listened to him speak, right? Like everybody else, maybe. No, or maybe you sold him more newspapers? I was a little different. I sold out all my papers, and I needed more to make more money, so I ran as far as I could. You know, right on the edge of uh, Bennett College, two blocks away was the railroad tracks. I ran down those railroad tracks as fast as my little legs would carry me, all the way to uh, Market Street, where I was able to get more newspapers and come back. Okay. And when I came back, 
That's when my world changed. What happened? Well, I went inside, I sat down, and I started listening to this guy talk. Looked around the room, I saw uh, people that I knew, a few people that I knew. I had already seen one guy outside that stayed across the street from us. His name was Ezell Blair. But I also saw the minister of our church, United Institution of Baptist Church. Uh, my minister was there, and he was the one to open up. I wasn't there to hear that. So Dr. King started to tell the people of Greensboro how important it was for them to vote, that there were people in the country that did not have the right to vote. In Greensboro, they could vote without uh, any real objection in the community by whites, and that was unusual. The community in Greensboro was made basically of, of college kids, and mm -hmm. um, you had uh, the Quaker uh, influence there, William Penn. Mm -hmm. They had people that would settle there, and they were pretty, pretty decent people. So the same problems wasn't there. So he told them, he said, I want to let you know that you aren't taking advantage of one of the biggest tools that African Americans have today, which is the right to vote. And because you're not doing that, you need to get off your butts. I said, wow. <laughs> you would need there. to get off of your butts, and you need to go to the polls, and you need to cast your vote because in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Georgia, the right to vote is there, but the people have so much opposition that you do not have here mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And that was, that was part of the message. I didn't hear his entire speech, mm -hmm. but I knew that I was sitting in the midst of something dynamic. Historic. Yeah. And... Um, I said, wow. And as I uh, left, I saw more papers, got a chance to speak to Dr. King, got a chance to speak to Rev. David Abernathy and thank them for purchasing papers from me. But I had to elbow my way a little bit because yeah. I was a little tight. Okay. And everybody was vying for this guy. And uh, I, I really think that changed my direction. So on, on the timeline of your life, if we zoom out a little bit from that moment, if we if we come to the present, you, you actually are the South DeKalb chapter president of the SCLC, right? Yeah, not by design, Ben. I am currently the president of DeKalb County, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, Now, for everybody at home that may not know what that is, why don't you go ahead and bring it home? Well, Southern Christian Leadership Conference was an organization that was set up by Dr. Martin Luther King in 1957. In attendance, you had uh, Rev. David Abernathy, Samuel Harvey, two of the young men, men that I saw. Right. When I met Dr. King, he was only 29 years of age. And uh, the year before, at age 28, he had set up the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was a civil rights arm. And the reason for doing that, he wanted to try to help African Americans get, to get their right to vote, have the opportunity to uh, participate in uh, segregated community in an integrated way. So he, he, he wanted positive things for everyone, not just for a few. Okay. And he felt like that, that wasn't in place at that time. And so the SCLC is still alive and well today, and you find yourself at the helm of, of an organization that is doing well in the community, right? Yes, I do. Uh, I have to say that the DeKalb County chapter is one of the uh, biggest voices in the, in the country. If there's an issue that need addressing, we will address it. And we will address it uh, intelligently, but very forcefully. Okay. Just like Martin would. Well, you know, 
every time I look at this guy, every time I think about him, I think about a, a young man, 29 years of age. You know, to, to, today I'm 72. I'm 29. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. So here's a guy that knew early on that he was going to do something to affect people mm -hmm. and bring about a change, love, agape love for everyone. That was his a life mission. Civil rights was just something that was a part of the of the step and the and the process. But his life mission was to bring agape love to the world, and uh, he was successful in, in doing that. Okay, he was given a Nobel Peace Prize because of the of this, not because of the civil rights movement, but because he brought what the world needed to deal with and the tools that they needed to have to handle the issues that we'd be facing across across in every country, not. Just America, Russia, China, every country and the world honors and respect Dr. King because of God P. Love. The civil rights things was a, just an extra. So let me share something with you, Ben. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. At age 14, Dr. King was a student at Morehouse College here in Atlanta, Georgia. He read in the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution newspaper, he read that down in Walton County, Moore's Ford Bridge crossing, a lynching had taken place that upset him so much that at, at age 14, he wrote an article to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about this. Very few people today even know that he attended school at 14. They don't know that he wrote an article, that he was that concerned about what was going on in his world. Okay. At age 14, think about what you were, you were thinking about as a kid. I was trying to get the Nintendo to come on. <laughs> there you go, Ben. And I was still trying to sell more newspapers. <laughs> but uh, this guy, had this, he had this vision. And I think that that incident put him on course for a direction that would affect all of mankind. Okay. Uh, his concern for others and uh, wanting the right thing to be done. And the, he felt like that the right time to do something, if it's morally wrong, is to correct it then, not later. And that's a wonderful way to to go about life, to deal with it right then and there instead of putting it off, right? Right then and there, you know. And uh, when he set up his organization, he set up to have chapters all across the United States. DeKalb SLC was born out of... Uh, it was born out of misunderstandings that had taken place within the, the corporate structure of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was bickering and fighting that was going on, infighting that was going on. The accusation of money has been taken and been misused. Mm -hmm. And I was hurt by that. Uh, the thing that drew me more to wanting to, to do something was because this young man that I met at age 29 in the same year that I met him, he was stabbed by an African-American woman who was trying to take his life. And if that knife has gotten just a little bit closer, I'm talking about centimeters, he would have been dead. He, he had gone through a struggle. And his first struggle, his first absolutely physical confrontation was that young woman who was trying to take his life. I, see, I didn't even know that. Yes, well... I'm glad I had, had knowledge now, of this to share. Now it. we all know. Yes. So Dr. King's life was threatened at age 29 by an African-American woman who stabbed him. 
What? <laughs> and from that day forward, it seemed like tragedy followed the family. Oh, okay. You know, let me give you a little bit, and we could go up and come back. But uh, Dr. King's mother was shot while sitting down at the organ. She was playing the organ. A friend of mine who was a school teacher at Murphy High School here in Atlanta, Georgia, had invited me on that day to church with him. He taught Sunday school. And another friend of mine, uh, Reverend Lewis Berry, invited me to Birmingham, Alabama to go and visit his family in A.G. Gaston that Sunday morning. And I chose to go with Lewis Berry. And uh, it was unfortunate. En route to Birmingham, Alabama, we learned of the, the killing of Dr. King's mother. Uh, she was shot and killed by Chenault. Chenault was a deranged young man that came into the church with the idea of really to hurt Dr. King's father. But because the mother came out to play the uh, organ on that Sunday morning, she, doesn't play, she, she wasn't playing every Sunday. Mm -hmm. But this was a Sunday that she was playing, and she came out before Daddy King was back in the back, getting ready, preparing uh, with his sermon for, uh, for church that day. So tragedy struck this family more than one time. His brother, A.D. King, there are a lot of people don't remember that he even had a brother. But Dr. King's brother, A.D. King, was the one that uh, was drowned. He was drowned. In really? His, yes, in his backyard. He was drowned, and uh, he was a great swimmer. And uh, he was drowned, and they said it was suicide. Well, Ben, one of the things that I find out through our history, African-American history, is that when we are lynched, there is no real inquiry to take place. You see, um, America did not prepare itself for African-Americans in the aftermath of slavery. They could only see slavery itself and what use that it had. But there were uh, things that would take place because they did not prepare, did not know, did not think. But um, then Dr. King was killed. I, I can never forget the day that, that Dr. King was killed. What, what was going on that day? Well, for me, um, I was a young kid that was uh, working in the acoustical ceiling business, and I was at a, a next door to an architect's office uh, drawing up plans. I have a photo that was taken by my brother, Bill. Uh, I'm his youngest brother. He uh, took a picture, and I was just staring into space with a shirt and tie on, short sleeve shirt, inside the office, looking over a set of plans, but really gazing at a wall mm -hmm. uh, that could not give me an answer. Could not give me reasons why, how. It was a very shocking thing. And uh, my uh, generation had to endure assassinations. That's not something that your generation knew anything about. Yeah. But uh, we went through Dr. King's death and then um, John F. Kennedy, uh, our president, was shot and killed in Dallas. And then later his brother, Robert Kennedy, mm -hmm. who... Uh, was responsible, really, for getting Dr. King out of jail. Oh, okay. That's another story that people don't know. Dr. King got a parking ticket. I remember one day you got a parking ticket. <laughs> but oh, uh, Dr. King got a parking ticket, but unlike you, where you had a chance to pay a fine and go on, they uh, housed him over in the Cab County Jail in the middle of the night. They put him inside of a transport wagon. 
with dogs in the back to transport him to Reedsville Jail. Reedsville is the most notorious jail in all of the Southeast. This way, the worst of the worst goes to Reedsville, but they had Dr. King going to Reedsville Jail. Okay. And uh, it was a Robert Kennedy who was approached by telephone by Dr. King's wife asking for intervention in that process. The judge in that case was Judge Cooper. Judge Cooper was a entrepreneur that had a tire business over in DeKalb County. He also had property out in the Snellville area. Okay. And uh, many many black men would be uh, put in jail so they could go and work on his properties. But Dr. Cooper, I mean, Reverend Cooper, you gotta excuse me, Ben, I'm getting choked up a little bit here. No, no take your time. But uh, Judge Cooper had taken Dr. King and put him in with those vicious dogs, and nobody knew what the outcome was going to be. His wife, in the middle of the night, called Bobby Kennedy and asked him to intervene, and he did. It was the intervention of Bobby Kennedy through conversation to the governor and a direct conversation to the sheriff and another conversation to the judge to let them know that if a hair was to be out of place with Dr. Martin Luther King, then the raft of the National Guards would be in Georgia. Oh, wow. And that next morning, he was released. As he should be. Yeah, he was released. But for parking ticket. Yeah. yeah parking ticket. Yeah, that's just something that I can't even fathom. Well, uh, a lot of people don't understand uh, what it would be like to have been in his shoes. First of all, he did not choose this, this path. He was prepared for the path, but it wasn't a choice that he chose. Men uh, approached him when he was in uh, Dexter Street Baptist Church preaching, and uh, they reached out to him because he, he was the, the guy that had that, <clears throat> he had that voice, he had that knowledge, he had that wisdom, he knew the history. Yeah. And all of that combined, and uh, he could deliver it. They wanted this guy to get a, be a part of what was taking place there in Montgomery. And he, uh, he chose to do so. When do you decide to be a leader? I often wrestle with that question. You don't decide. You're born one. We all have that thing inside of us. And some people allow it to awaken and others will push it aside and do other things. They might even try to play Nintendo games for a minute. <laughs> but at some point, there's a voice and a quality that's in a person, and they're going to have to answer that call. you got to answer that call, Ben. When I met you, you were the young man that came from Auburn University to Atlanta, and you, you were enthralled about what was taking place in the music scene and yep. what was taking place in the rap scene, yep. and you really wanted to do something. But you came with the goal of making a movie. And I always wonder, and I always ask, Ben, what are you doing now? Because I knew that that's what you came to do. You know, so that thing inside of us, uh, it's got to live. You can't keep suppressing it. It's going to burst out one day. Yeah. And uh, look what has happened. You got all this knowledge. Yeah. You come full circle. Yeah. You got the ability to be able to do just what you set out to do as a kid. And it only took uh, nine years. <laughs> nine years. Yeah. We're actually sitting here at this table 
I want to say uh, in October it will be nine years since Nate and I first met. When I first moved here, I got a uh, I leased a house a few miles down from a community arts center called Wonder Root, and I think they're still there. Are they still they, there? They're still there, and they got one of the largest contracts. They performed the contracts for the NFL uh, game. Oh yeah, that's right. I did see that. Yeah, I saw all, the press release. Yes, all the murals that's in Atlanta that was created Wonder artistically Root. came through Wonder Root. So I, me being. 20. I hadn't even turned 21 no, at the time. Was, yeah. I got on Google Maps and I was typing in art centers. I was looking for basically like a community to get into. And I, I walked into this house that had been converted into like an, a, a, an art studio, basically. And Nate was sitting there with his uh, cowboy hat on and he was painting in the corner of a room. And so there was Nate and then there, and then there was like a bunch of other people of varying age groups, right? Yes, mostly and, younger than me. <laughs> yeah, but I just naturally, I'm, I guess I'm an old soul or whatever. I think I, I, I clicked up with Nate. I, I was able to relate more with Nate than I was to people my own age at the time. And so, I, I, and, and we called him Top Pop at the time. Yeah. I think people still call you yeah, Top Pop, right? They still right? call me Top Pop. <laughs> and they also, they asked me, where, where did it come from? I said, it came from a young uh a man that went to school in Auburn that came to Atlanta <laughs> to create movies. And uh, he and I went across the Southeast traveling uh, so I could get him. Uh, Nate and I hit the road, man. We hit the road. <laughs> I, the truth of the matter, Ben, I wasn't white enough and you wasn't black enough. <laughs> so we had to merge the two so we could yes. get it right. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it did. Those road trips, I really look back on those days. We went to Asala. We went to Raleigh, North Carolina, yeah. where the Asala. Uh, that was a real eye-opening experience for me. Asala, um, I just, I'd never heard of it. I'd never been to it. And Nate brought me, and I was able, I mean, dude, it was like an amazing weekend. Yeah, well, Carlegie uh, Wilson created Asala. Uh, and it, today it's one of the largest educational uh, events that take place in America that uh, tell the history and the story of the African-Americans and educators from all over the country, really now all over the world come uh, to share with us their treaties and rights and papers uh, they're gonna use to get their master's and doctorate, doctoral degrees. It's, it's, a great, it's a great organization. Yeah, I wanna go again. I'm gonna hold you to it, Let's man. Let's we, go. We're gonna do it, <laughs> we're gonna do it. But I got to go back a little bit. I want to yeah, go back. Go I want to go back. Okay, so here we are with a young man, 29 years of age, and he can't see into the future to know what his future is going to be. Mm -hmm. He's moving at a rapid pace. America needed someone. You know, in preparation for what was going to happen with Dr. King, it was men like Booker T. Washington that set the stage. It was people like Henry Grady that uh, wanted a different South than the South that existed. And in order to get the story straight, you got to talk about the vision and the wisdom of whites and blacks alike that wanted something better for the South. So I want to mention Henry Grady because he was a, a man, he was a visionary. In the early 1800s, 1880, 1885, those, those years, Henry Grady saw a South where whites and blacks can live together and he didn't think it was necessary uh, for one group to use a tool over the other group or that there was a danger because one group would come up or both groups would come up. Okay. And uh, so he was a progressive thinker. He laid the foundation for a, a young uh, Booker T. Washington 
to come and speak here in Atlanta. You guys hear this? Yeah. This is historical now. Booker T. Washington spoke at the fair and exposition in Atlanta, Georgia at Piedmont Park. I think it was around 1895. Okay. And he delivered a speech that pleased five different groups that could not work in conjunction with one another. And let me tell you, you had the northerner businessman, the southern businessman, you had the southern uh, farmer who was oppressed because properties had been taken from him, he did not have labor to do work. You had the freed slave who could not do any work, who was not trained, and then you got those who had aspirations for training and education. Mm -hmm. He delivered a speech to all five of those people, and all five people jumped and clapped in jubilation at the end of the speech. Yet, they all connected on different components of what was spoken about. That's amazing. It's amazing. And uh, he did it because it wasn't his desire to tell a good speech. It was his desire to be a healer of the community. Okay, yeah. And that's what Booker T. Washington did. And I, I, I thank him for it. And I, I think that men like uh, Rockefeller, who gave him thousands and millions of dollars at some point to help build Tuskegee uh, Institute and to build other uh, organizations around our country, historical black schools, we would not have had them if it wasn't for the men like uh, Booker T. Washington and him reaching out to uh, northern, northerners who can make a contribution. And at the head of that list was uh, the Rockefellers. So Message. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you are where you are today because someone else had to go through a trial. Someone else had to go through the test. Someone else had to take the pain. Someone else had to have the brick thrown at them. Ouch. And someone else had to do the swimming in the water. Yeah. You know, so don't wade in that water. You had to swim in that water. Which brings me to something else. You know, I grew up in Tarboro, North Carolina. You and I never got a chance to go there. But in the back of our property was the Tar River. And as a young boy, uh, you had to swim in the water. To swim in the water, you have to jump off of the bridge into the carrots of the Tar River. Okay. Uh, I'm five years of age. Okay. I'm learning how to swim Sink in the Tar swim. River. Yeah. And that's what life is about. You got to jump out there in it. You got to live it, and you are going to sink or swim. And so far, not a lot of barriers. Somebody is doing the breaststroke. Somebody. Somebody. And it's got to be you. Someone's doing the doggy paddle, though. That's exactly right. But they're all swimming, yeah. and they're all getting to the other side, getting to where they can be safe. And uh, that's what Dr. King did. He brought information to people. He didn't try to make them digest it or ingest it. He said, look, look at these two factors. Which one of these is going to make our world better, stronger? Which one? So what action do you think you need to take? He, he, he pretty much presented everyone with the obvious choice. The obvious choice. Yeah, and, and the world is a much better place for it. Well, look at you and I. We're sitting here. In the same room. And now you're, you're black enough. Yeah. Hey, ATL. And, and I'm white enough yeah. for us to merge together and be great <laughs> enough. You Isn't see, that something? It is. I, I, I love this country, and I love this day and age. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I, I can't thank um, you know everybody who came before me for making something like this possible, or at least less difficult than it ever should have been. Because all I had to do was call Nate and say, "Hey, man, I'm I'm, I'm about to pick you up, dude." Hey, I'm pulling up. <laughs> and he pulled up. He pulled up in his car. Sometimes it wasn't enough gas when he got there, but it's okay. We put bubble gas in it. Those were the days. And we traveled. We traveled. I remember we went to Livingston College. My great great. Yeah, that was a great trip. Yeah, uncle, my great great uncle John C. Dancy was a part of the 1898 race riot. Yep. His papers all was at Livingston College. And I never forget the day that you and I went there and you. Uh, went with me so that I could try to get information so we could see those papers. Yeah. Well, we was told to, to come back so that we could. They made it possible. But we, we got busy in our lives doing other things. I want us to make that journey. You know what? Yeah. Let's we need make, to make that, that journey. journey. We need to make that journey. We need to re-up on a little trip to Livingston College. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you all are not familiar with Atlanta in its earliest days, in its formative years, and the struggles and the evolutionary stages that it had to go through. But you had, you had a lot of people that helped make that possible. I mentioned to you about uh, Henry Grady, uh, but Alonzo Herndon, who had the insurance business, he was one of the greatest men in the city, uh, African-American businessman, who had a 25-seat uh, barbershop downtown Atlanta on Peachtree Street, where white men was able to get their hair cut. And they did, they loved his service, and they paid him dearly for it. This man was able to build an insurance business, one of the largest in the United States of America. And uh, it, it came because two groups, black and white, came together, saw a need, one fulfilled the money and the other fulfilled the, the labor to do the job. And that's what is making the South strong. It's unity, unity, that's the key. The key component for success in Atlanta and all of Georgia is unity. You do not have to be threatened by my knowledge or be threatened by what I learn and what I do because the world is gonna progress, it's gonna change, it's not gonna stay where we are, it's going to advance, it's gonna take creative more creative knowledge and everybody got an input into it in order for all of us to benefit so tell everybody what's going on in selma this week is it this week yeah selma alabama march the third the first sunday in march um bloody Blood sunday is one of the it's one of the hard felt events that took place in our in our history in alabama's you have state troopers that met people like F.D. Reese and Amelia Boynton, who was on the bridge that day. Uh, they were making a, a march across the Emma Pellis Bridge en route to Montgomery, um, just asking for the right to vote, want, want, want to have something that the Constitution said you have, yeah. but you had those who stood still in the way and said, no, you can't do this. And so they walked on that bridge on that particular day. You had hundreds of people that was beaten by highway patrolmen and law enforcement officers and Klansmen and uh, just uh, racist people who did not understand that uh, letting Americans have the right to vote was a constitutional matter that was decided by our forefathers long before the problem ever existed. 
they saw deep into a future. And then you had those who benefited from that future wanting to take what those uh, forefathers saw uh, and they wanted to take that away from some of the people. We were in bondage when the right to vote was given. We were in bondage when the Constitution was written. But the history shows that the wisdom of those who wrote the Constitution, they took things in consideration that were futuristic. We got a living Constitution that served the people and when uh, it needs to change, then the process to change it through amendments were already set forward. Yes. And the, the government was already set forward. We have a Congress, we have the Supreme Court, we have the presidency, and all of those have to work in concert with one another. No one can do, they can try, but no one can usurp the authority and the spirit in which the Constitution of the United States was written. And uh, it's for all of us. Bloody Sunday uh, came about because a governor decided, no, you're not going to have the right to vote. No, you're not going to be able to congregate. No, you're not going to be able to have um, it's Selma, Alabama. equal access. In Selma, Alabama. Selma was a place that nobody in the world knew about until this situation uh, presented itself. It was chosen because it was a large black belt of people that stayed there that was suppressed. And um, one of the things that you have to understand about the movement is that it wasn't Dr. King's movement. It was the people's movement. The Montgomery um, uh, Improvement Organization was set up and it laid the stage and foundation for people like Rosa Parks and the other the NAACP to uh, t uh, stand up against oppression there. And you had oppression in rural Albany, Georgia, um, where uh, the people were suppressed, did not have equal rights, did not have equal access, could not use community uh, uh, services, mm -hmm. um, could not eat in certain restaurants, could not do anything. So uh, America had changed, but the South was slowly slower to accept the inevitability that all of us will have to come together and live in America, not at the expense of one another, but we will all make each other stronger. Selma, Alabama on Bloody Sunday, March the 3rd, Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed protecting his father. Um, can you imagine, you were 29. When I met you, you was around 19, 20 years of age. Yep. And your father was protective over you. He really didn't want you to leave home. He wanted you to stay there and go to school in Auburn. And he did so uh, because he understood there's a world out there. And you said, Dad, I want to I wanna go out there. I want to see what this world is all about. He said, no, son, I want you to stay. And uh, that battle with, between father and son, mother and daughter, is the same thing that took place between the states. And... Uh, one group could see where it was not a problem, which I explained, Henry Grady, mm -hmm. he was progressive, futuristic. And others like Bull Connors and George Wallace, they saw something different. So we had Bloody Sunday where- And this uh, is the anniversary of Bloody Sunday coming up. Yeah, this anniversary that's coming up is the 53rd anniversary, 54th anniversary of Bloody Sunday next year. Every uh, five years, 
we would do the reenactment from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. We walked the entire distance. And there's a there's a bridge. The, this is a legendary bridge involved. Yes, Elba Pellis Bridge. The the people in Selma, they went to the churches and they met at their church and they discussed everything that was taking place and they made a decision. Uh, the pastor made a decision. It's ironic that uh, you had about eight or nine churches in the area, but all of them on Sunday morning was talking about the same thing, and uh, uh, they got together collectively outside of a federal housing project in Selma, Alabama, and planned the march. And they they marched up until they got to the bridge. When they got to Emma Pettus Bridge, that's Edmund, E-D-M-U-N-D, Pettus, P-E-T-T-U-S. I'm, I'm from North Carolina. Got a slight lisp. Uh, so <laughs> I don't want you not to be able to understand what I say, but uh, all the links to these historical events, by the way, will be in the video description. I'm going to have Wikipedia articles that that are directly like what what Nate is referencing. You're going to be able to look it up very like just just find those links in the in the book. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So on this particular day, they they started up the bridge and they got almost to the pinnacle of the bridge where they could see to the other side. On the other side, you had the uh, Klansmen, you had National Guards, you had uh, Bull Connors and his people and his dogs that was going to meet the people at the, right at the top of the bridge, and they did so. And uh, they, it was, it was ugly. What happened? Men, women, and children was beat with billy clubs. Some of them jumped over into the, the, the water, and some jumped off over into the land. Uh, Reverend Jose Williams saved a little girl named Cheyenne. Uh, he put his body, draped his body over him, and it took a vicious beating uh, that day. Willie Bolton, uh, a Georgia and Atlanta preacher, he's dead now. He was the one that led the mule train from Mississippi up to Washington, D.C. He, uh, he, he was one of the men that jumped over. John Lewis, who's a congressman now, uh, he was beat up mercifully all about the head. You could still see the cuts and gashes. One of the things that people don't understand that the, the beatings that took place in communities across America left people injured. Oh, yeah. It left real body injuries to people. That's yeah. not done by the incision of a doctor. Uh, hatred is a, is a bad thing in our society. And the, the teachings of Dr. King have kept a lot of hatred from boiling over into acts of violence. The King of Philosophy is what guides the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and all their presidents and all their members. We take a vow that if someone hits you, you won't hit back. If someone cut you, you won't cut back. If someone uh, stand in your way to keep you from going forward, that you would sit down or lie down in peaceful resistance. These are some of the things that Dr. King uh, put into practice in the, the King of Philosophy that was taken from Mahatma Gandhi and from other philosophers. And uh, he used those in, 
and he used them very strongly. And, and, and this Selma event has been documented well throughout history. And I, I can't even imagine that the, the people in power, the, the political people in power who were authorized this event you know, back then, could, how could they know that this wasn't going to be a pivotal point in history? You know? Well, this is the thing that people will have to learn to give uh, Dr. King some credit about. He was a strategist. He had a team of men around him, and some of them uh, you may know, John Lewis is one, uh, C.T. Vivian another. Um, he had Rev. David Abernathy and Dr. Lowry, uh, uh, Semi uh, uh, was there for him from day one. Mm -hmm. He had the vision and wisdom of even a singer, Mahalia Jackson, and a, bar, uh, a, a beauty shop owner all these people had knowledge and wisdom that he pulled from, and he had the schools and colleges around the country. So if you want to answer to a question, he didn't always uh, take his, his own opinion about things. Mm -hmm. He would measure those things and then weigh it up against, uh, he liked to call it the, uh, he always believed that in all situations, that the wheels of justice was always turned in the way of the moral right, and he would, he would call this the moral compass. And, uh, and it does. It starts off in a dark way, but it ends up in a light way. So Emma Pettus Bridge was very dark on that day, but today it's very light. We have the right to vote. We have people that have died. Uh, uh, F.D. Reese died three or four days, three or four years ago. He was the father of the Voters' Rights Act. He was the one that led the teachers in Selma, Alabama. James Orange was a part of the um, uh, the Montgomery uh, Improvement Association, but he's gone with us. Rosa Parks, the first and only black woman to be held in state in the Rotunda in Washington, D.C. America have seen that it made some mistakes. We are a work in progress. This country did not come here with all of the answers. It came with people who desired answers and desired change in their life. And the doors were open to everyone that wanted to come. You got people from all over the world who have been able to come to Atlanta, excuse me, come to America and live. The problem is that we were already here. And so now some adjustments gotta be made. You see, if you went to work every day and got paid a check, and when you were able to come home, take care of your family and pay your bills, then everything's all right. Yeah. But what happened when someone inject a issues in between that? Oh, then we finna have problems then. And that's what happened. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. You see, all of America was in on slavery at the beginning, but as time went forward and industrialization came into being, then one segment of the company said, hey, we don't need this as much, but you guys got to change what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, the people that had to change didn't have, they didn't have a way of making that change. They didn't see how they could do it and how they could maintain their land, their property, uh, schools, education for their children. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see those things, and that wasn't provided. So you had this friction. 
that came between two groups. And in the middle of that, you had uh, two more groups that was affected. You had the American Indians, and you also had uh, the African-Americans. If you roll the clock back a little bit further, you would have had three groups. You would have had the African-Americans, you had the American Indians, you had the white Americans. Now, why would I say you would have the white Americans? Because we have to understand that many of the whites that came into America came here as indigent servants. Right. They had to serve out a time span with someone for a certain amount of time to pay their way for having come into this country. Mm-hmm. And that is a form of slavery. Yeah. So um, that's is what this country is made out of. Where are we today? We have a much better place. We still got some things to work out, work on. Agreed. And um, we are looking forward to those challenges as a country. We're more coherent, even though uh, some are Republicans, some are Democrats, some are independents. When it comes down to protection of this country, we are one. That's we are right. one nation with one God, one constitution, and one law for all. That's right. And that is the America, and that is the America that Dr. King won. And I'm glad to see fractions of that American place today, Ben. <laughs> yes, sir. And you know what? You guys are going to be able to catch Nate down at Selma this weekend. Well, you're right. Uh, Bloody Sunday is a Southern Christian Leadership Conference initiative. And uh, when Sunday come, I will be at the forefront of the group. Uh, you guys are going to go across the bridge. We're going to go across that bridge, Ben. But we, we gather at the African uh, Episcopal Church. And we start from that point. So it's the rallying point. So I have to get make sure that all the dignitaries that's uh, with SLC are at the front of that march. There are several marches that take place. John Lewis may have already did a march mm-hmm. a- ahead of us yeah. and may come back and be a part of this march or be a part of the interviews. There are a lot of different things that take place. Do you know that Congressman Lewis takes a group of senators and members of the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republicans, and they go through a tour of the civil rights, uh, they call it the Civil Rights Trail, and they, they do it a day or two before Selma, and they end up at Selma, but they continue that tour before they go back to Washington, D.C. And it's that type of uh, grouping, it's that type of uh, connecting that have made it possible for all of us to come closer together, regardless of what our differences are. So I did not know that, but I, it, it definitely doesn't surprise me because of John Lewis's stance uh, amongst a lot of these issues. In fact, we were just watching the Oscars last night, and right before they announced the um, Oscar for Best Picture, they brought out John Lewis, and they had him speak. I'm going to have to pull up that clip for you. But the picture that won Best Picture is a racially charged picture. And I thought that the fact that they have congressmen coming out to, to speak about these issues is, is interesting because look at him. Here he is. He's on national television in front of 37 million people talking about the same thing. Like, that's just his, like, that's his, you know, that's him. That's him. But I got to share something you may have forgotten. What's that? Uh when Ben and I was working together, we had what was called the National Civil Rights News. Yes. And on the front page of, of one of the issues is a picture of John Lewis 
He's on he's on the front page. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh uh we got his story. Ben, he was not a cub reporter. He was he was the manager for National Civil Rights News. Yeah. And uh <laughs> we did interviews of John Lewis, uh, and we got a story of him. And I went to Washington DC, Ben, uh, shortly after that, and I met with John Lewis in his office. Yeah. I made him take a picture with us holding National Civil Rights News yeah. in his office yeah. after I got a handful of those Georgia peanuts Yum. that came from, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great time. We've done some great things, and uh, I look forward to us doing some of those things. I would love to see National Civil Rights News TV yeah. become a reality. I think we have a I different point. Yeah. I think we're going to have to make that happen. Let's make it happen. And you know, I guess maybe you guys don't know, but Nate and I could probably sit down at a table and podcast for 74 <laughs> hours straight in a row. Yes, we got a lot, of, a lot of things that have happened, a lot of things that we've done. There's a lot that I know about Ben that Ben know about me, and there's a lot of interest that we have uh, that's healthy and good for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I never forget the time that my little grandson lost Ben's camera. <laughs> <laughs> this was the same D- Nikon DSLR that made it up to Washington, D.C. and That's took right. photographs of President Obama yeah. at the time. Yeah, we got, a, we got, we got uh, Obama and we have uh, Michelle yeah. coming down Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah. On a very cold day. Yeah, Ben, it made it, it, made it there. <laughs> I, I owned a camera that took pictures of the president, but alas, it did not come back to me. But physical physical things, you know, whatever, they're just material possessions. It's the, it's the, it's the historical factor that, that really mattered to me. Yeah, we, we got some stuff. I got one that I just got to tell people about, Ben. Uh, Go for it. You know, we was over there. Warren Bar- Dunn had made a, he had made a decision to create an organization to back the interests of his mother. And we was over there with Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter oh, and, his, and his people. It was at, the housing, housing initiative. Yes. Right? <laughs> so uh, Jimmy Carter is at, it's like nine in the morning, right? It's nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Jimmy Carter is there at the spot. And Nate is like, hey, Ben, you got to take a picture with me and Jimmy Carter, right? So that's, that's the stage. I set the stage. And so Ben said, yes, I'm, I'm going to do that. I said, well, listen. He's going to get out of the car. He's going to come around, and he's got to come this way. I said, if you stand in the right position right here, I'll make sure that I'm with Jimmy Carter so you can get the picture. Well, he took the picture of Jimmy Carter. But what did you do, Ben? What I, happened? I took a picture of President Jimmy Carter, but but Nate is cropped out of the picture. All half, <laughs> half his face is in the frame. And and Nate Nate will never let me live that down. No, but I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give Ben a chance to correct that. Uh, <laughs> one of the good great things about Jimmy Carter is that he's still alive. He's still doing great things. He's still working with Habitat of Humanity. He's almost a hundred years old now, but he's still got that zest for life, and he's still building houses and rail, Warren Dawn is still we're waiting. We're gonna have on. to. We're gonna have to take we're that picture. Have, we gotta take that picture, yeah. Ben. Well, look, Nate. We're going to have to also sit down and do this again. What do you say we get out of here and go get some sweet tea? It's time for sweet tea and three slices of lemon. I'm all for that. That's what's up. Guys, I'm here with Mr. Nathan Knight, civil rights legend in the secret room at Third Eye Collective. Thank you so much for making it to the end of this podcast. We're going to do this again. If you enjoyed uh, today's episode, please let us know down in the comments what you want to see us talk about next. And uh, 
We'll see you at the mountaintop. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know what? Before we get out of here, just because we've got the ear of just about every hipster from here to outside of the perimeter, why don't you let everybody know about that? Well, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King never got a chance to do what he said in his famous speech, which is let freedom reign from the mountaintop of Stone Mountain, Georgia, to the alligators of Pennsylvania. And so as president of DeKalb County Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that has really bothered me more than anything else. Uh, when I think of him, meeting him at age 11 and not getting a chance to, for him to see the contributions that other people have gotten from him and the things that he's done, I felt like that we needed to make it possible that the bell of freedom ring. Now, you got to understand that Dr. King said, let freedom ring, R-E-I-G-N. And it will ring when you and I go to the mountaintop of Stone Mountain, Georgia, and ring the bell of freedom. We're going. And I want to know, where you go, Ben? Uh, I'm sorry? Where you go? Oh, uh, oh yeah. I'll, You're I'll, not scared, are not, you? No, I'm going to be there with the camera crew. I'm going to be there with an assistant director. We're, we're basically going to document this trip to the top of Stone Mountain to let freedom ring. We're going to get a chance to do what Dr. Martin Luther King wanted to do in his lifetime. Uh, you know, and uh, the better portion of the day are going to be events that's going to take place down at the bottom of the mountaintop before we go up. We're going to have people uh, offering ideas and suggestions as to how we can better make things work in our communities. We're not going to be talking about the defacing of monuments. We're not going to be talking about any of that. We're yeah. there strictly for the the uh, uh, edicts of Dr. Martin Luther King, the thing that he yeah. wants us to do to come together as uh, a man and women sharing the ideas of agape love. Yes, sir. Yeah. And so you guys keep your eyes open for that date because when we set that date, we're going to promote it. And you, you are going to, there's just going to be no way that you're going to be able to unsee the posters when they're promoted on Facebook. So, uh, and please come join us because it will be an historic event. And who knows, you may be in a classic piece of stock footage that may end up in a documentary on Netflix one day. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It will be, Ben. It has never it been be. done before. This has never been done yeah. by this organization, period. This would be the first and only time since 1957 when Dr. King started this movement that someone took time to do something that was not related to the death or killing of someone else to do something for humanity. Yes. And we're going to do that. Yes. We're going to the top of the Stone Mountain, guys. So uh, you heard it first. This is where it's happening. Guys, Nathan Knight in the flesh. We'll see you there. Bye. Shit to shit, support.